Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Morning, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Saving Grace Church. And before we start, I would like to have us all pray for one of the other pastors, Joe, who is experiencing a lot of back pain. And um, so he is not here this morning. We told him not to come in because he's in a lot of pain. So let's pray for Joe. Lord, we just ask you to have mercy on Joe and please heal his back. Lord, we pray that you would just give him a refreshing morning being off and that you would just strengthen and heal his back and deliver him from pain and uh, restore him to just strength and health, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. And Lord, we also ask that you would please speak to us through your word this morning, that you would use your word to give us hope and encouragement and strength and confidence in you, Lord. Just please, Holy Spirit, help me and, and anoint your word as we open it this morning. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know what my favorite thing was last night? Well, I loved the whole thing. I loved it. But one of my favorite things was the instrument that uh, one of the guys was pounding on the, on, the, on the floor that had a tambourine on it and bells and I don't know what it was all. And uh, I, I asked him about it and it's called a Jingle John. A Jingle John. And he actually bought it from the band, a guy in the band, Ren Collective, which is where I saw it on a video by Ren Collective. And I said, wait, you bought the guy from Ren Collective's Jingle John? And he said, no, the guy has a company. He makes these and sells them. I said, oh, so that wasn't the original Jingle John. I thought, man, we had the original Ren Collective Jingle John in our church. But I don't know, I like, I like, to say, I like saying Jingle John. So, I, I, you know, it has a nice feel to it. So I'll probably insert that into my message this morning here and there. Well, we're in the book of Daniel. We are in the book of Daniel, which is obviously why we have these lions, which weigh 500 pounds each. <laughs> Nothing for me. Um, obviously because of Daniel and the lion's den. And uh, in case you're wondering, if you're here for the first time and wonder, why do they have lions on the stage? We're, we're not a weird church, at least not too bad. And... Uh, it's because we're in a series on Daniel. And this morning we will be in Daniel chapter 2, and we'll be starting at verse 26, but I need to review what happened before this. Bob did a great job a couple weeks ago, and, uh, and since we, it's been a couple weeks, I'll just do a quick review. Um, Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. They have been transported there, captive against their will, and they are serving the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the most powerful, glorious 
king in all the earth. He's also an extremely wicked man. And in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar has a recurring dream that, that greatly shakes him. And so he commands all his magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and wise men, tell me the dream and tell me its meaning. And they say, well, Nebuchadnezzar, we you got to tell us the dream. We can't tell you the dream. Tell us the dream and we'll tell you the meaning. He says, oh, no, no, no. If I tell you the dream, you can just make up a meaning. You can tell me anything you want. You can deceive me is essentially what he says. So he says, you tell me the dream or I'll have you torn limb from limb and I'll, I'll raise your homes to the ground. And they say, Nebuchadnezzar, nobody can do that. We can't tell you the dream. Come on. And so he tells Arioch, the captain of the guard, to destroy him. All the wise men, all the enchanters, sorcerers. He's, this guy, this Nebuchadnezzar, is a wicked man. He says, you can't tell me your dream? Rip their arms off. Rip their legs off. And then flatten their homes. And so Arioch is going around and uh, he comes to Daniel's house. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are serving Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel, Daniel very wisely asks, what, why? What's going on? And he requests from Arioch an appointment to tell the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And he agrees. And so Daniel goes to his friends and says, guys, pray for me. Pray that God will reveal it. And God reveals the dream to Daniel. And he tells Arioch, the captain of the guard, to go back to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I got the answer. So Arioch brings Daniel before the king and all the magicians, enchanters, and wise men are spared. That's where we come in today. And so it starts off at verse 26 in Daniel chapter 2 with a question. Nebuchadnezzar asks, the king declared to Daniel, and he had renamed him with a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, he says, are you, able to, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel replies, he says, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. First of all, he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And as I was studying this, I was thinking, you know, who do we look to when we're in a jam? Most of us Christians don't look to enchanters, I hope, magicians, or astrologers, but we might look to earthly wise men. There's lots of people who give advice and tell us how to live, and they might have some good things to say. Or we might look to our own wits. I mean, that's, that's sadly what we do a lot of the time when we're in a jam, we're in trouble. We look to our own wits when we don't know what to do. We, we say, I've got to figure this out. What am I going to do? How am I going to provide for my family? How am I gonna, what am I going to do for a job? Who do you look to to guide your life? We've got to remember that we who know Jesus Christ have a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
Psalm 32, 8. If you've been here for a while, you've heard me quote this again and again, and I will keep quoting it because I want you to know it by heart. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I pray that probably every week, if not more. I say, Lord, You have promised. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now please do this. I believe you will do this, Lord. It says in James, if we lack wisdom and we ask for wisdom and faith, He will give it to us. We have a God in heaven who knows what's going on. He knows everything that's going to happen. He has it all planned out and He knows exactly what we should do. And He promises He will guide us. And so Daniel, he, he's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar this dream, but before he does that, he gives glory and credit to God. He says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. I just think, man, Daniel, you had a chance right there well, King Nebuchadnezzar, all your enchanters, all your wise men couldn't do it, but I, uh, I got an inside track to God. He tells me mysteries. I, I, I got the answer for you. You know, he, he could have puffed himself up. He could have exalted himself. But no, he's, he's exalting God. He remembers like we should all remember. We don't have anything but what has been given us. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Any talent you have, any gift that you have, any intelligence that you have, any strength that you have, it's all a gift from God. Daniel was one of the wisest guys, but yet he knew everything he had was from God. And we need to remember that. And then, this is incredible. When you think about this next thing, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that God cares about him. He says, this mystery has been revealed to me, and then he says, in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. God says, essentially, I, I love Nebuchadnezzar, even though he's a wicked man. And I'm going to tell you, Daniel, so that you can reveal this dream to him. God cared for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was an evil man. If he didn't get his way, he'd rip your arms and legs off and, and tear your house down. If, if you didn't obey him, he'd throw you to the lion's den. Or like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we'll see later, he threw them into a furnace of fire. He did four times hotter than normal. He was so irritated at them because they didn't obey him. He was an evil man. He had no regard for life, no regard for God, but God cared about him, desired to reveal himself, as we'll see later in the book of Daniel. God, God did a number of things to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a wicked man, but God cared for him, and Daniel did too. Daniel didn't go in with a bad attitude. 
Daniel didn't go in saying, you think I'm going to tell you, cruel tyrant? You think I'm going to tell you who would do this to all these men? No. He went in and he told him because he's hoping God would save him, that God would reveal himself to him. At least that's what I believe. He was respectful, even though this was a wicked ruler. I want want to tell you something. God cares about the leaders of our country. He doesn't hate them. He desires their salvation. Even if you disagree with them, even if you don't care for their policies, pray for them. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what the Bible says. Do you pray for our president as much as you complain about him? First of all, you shouldn't complain about him at all. Because we're supposed to do all things without grumbling or complaining. The Bible tells us that. If you disagree, you can feel free to express your disagreement. But if you call our president an idiot, you are disobeying the Bible. You are committing a sin if you do that. I'm telling you this just because I care about you. Do you pray for our president as much as you talk about his bad policies? if you think he has bad policies. I regularly pray. I pray for President Obama. I say, Lord, please save President Obama. Save his wife. Please save his children. I pray that God would save every one of our Supreme Court justices. That God, I pray that God would save every one of our senators. I pray that God would save every representative. Because the Bible tells us to pray for our leaders. God cares about them, even if they are not believers. He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So now Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream. He says, You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this is amazing. First of all, think of it. How amazing it is. Nebuchadnezzar could or Daniel could tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream in great detail. Only God could have revealed that to him. You know, Daniel was not like mediums or, or that you see who, who throw out something and say, well, uh, I, I'm seeing a, a girl or a, a woman. Our daughter! Our daughter! Yes, you have a daughter. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm, I'm seeing something in her hand, something moving. Our daughter plays basketball. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that, but, but there are people who take advantage of others, pretending they can read their minds, and they throw out things. No, Daniel receives this exactly from God and tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly in great detail what he dreamed. This would make Nebuchadnezzar believe hopefully, in God. 
If God would tell him the dream, God would tell him what it meant. And so now Nebuchadnezzar tells him the interpretation. He says in verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. And so he talks about, first of all, the head of gold. He said the head of gold represented Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. So he says the head of this image was of fine gold. Verse 32. But he says in verse 37, he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand He has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. This Babylon, Babylonian monarchy had arrived to its height of glory under Nebuchadnezzar. He adorned and improved Babylon to such a degree that it was one of the wonders of the world. This, this was absolutely, in its time, the height of civilization. And so, that's why his empire was compared to a head of gold. And what's really striking about this is that Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that God is the one who gave him that rule. God is the one who put him there. He says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's intelligence or brilliance or, or maneuvering. It was God who had put him there. God who had given him all that glory, all that power. We need to remember this. God is the one who places rulers and leaders in their positions. Now think about this. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked man. God didn't place him there because he was good and loving and kind and cared about people. God put him there for his own purposes. He wasn't, Nebuchadnezzar was not there because he was smart and brilliant. He wasn't voted in. Now, bear with me here. The next president of the United States, whoever that may be, won't be there primarily because we vote. We can vote. It's, it's good to vote. It's good to be involved. It's good to, 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 to take whatever uh, steps we can take to influence our government, to be involved there. But the president is not going to be there primarily because we vote him or her in whatever. The president will be there because God puts leaders in government. He raises up leaders. He tears them down. The future is in God's hands. Earlier in chapter 2, when God revealed the dream to Daniel, Daniel praised God saying this in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. 
He removes kings and sets up kings. Why was Nebuchadnezzar there? Because God had put him there. And we think, why would God do that? Why would God put a wicked man in charge of all these people? Why would God give, give our country a wicked president? Why would God do that kind of thing? He has his purposes. He has his reasons. Now, I believe we should pray for a godly president. I'm not saying we just sit back passively and say, well, God's going to have whoever He wants. I'm not going to do anything or pray or I'm not going to take any kind of action. No, but we just need to be assured that God is in control. God is in control for His purposes. I don't understand. I don't know why. God has had incredible mercy on this nation despite many wicked presidents throughout this, the years. We've had many presidents who were drunkards and adulterers, and somehow God has had mercy on our nation. Pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. But we need to know who's in control. So that's the first kingdom. Then Daniel says, here's the second, second part of the dream. There's going to be a second kingdom. Verse 39 says, Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And in verse 32, he said, It's chest and arms of silver. This second empire was the Persians and the Medes. Note the chest and two arms. Persians and Medes. The Persian king Cyrus the Great overthrew Babylon. But the empire of the Persians and Medes was inferior to the Babylonian empire. And then there would be a third kingdom. A and it's called the bronze kingdom. Verse 39. It's middle and thighs of bronze. Verse 32. And then verse 39 says, And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. This third kingdom is the Greco-Macedonian Empire, or the Greek Empire and the Macedonian Empire, which followed the Medes and the Persians. They, the Medes and the Persians were conquered by Alexander the Great. He was the first to reign over Greece. And this third kingdom is said, which shall rule over all the earth. Well, Alexander essentially ruled over the known earth at that time. In fact, he commanded that he be called the king of all the world. Now, that's what I tell Christy to call me. Um, not, I don't have quite the power of Alexander the Great. Um, but uh, he commanded that he be called king of all the world. He had technically not conquered the whole world, but he had considerable dominions in Europe and Asia and Africa, which were the, the, the known world then. And Greece was represented by brass or bronze because the Greeks were famous for their armor, which was made out of bronze, brazen armor, and they were called the brazen-coated Greeks. So this is the brass, the third kingdom of bronze. Then, Daniel said, there's a fourth kingdom. Verse 33, it's legs of iron. 
Verse 40, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Well, this was the Roman Empire. And it was mighty like iron. And it conquered Rome conquered Greece in 146 B.C. Conquered the city of Corinth and conquered, conquered Greece. And Rome was a powerful, mighty, conquering kingdom. But the dream also revealed that Rome would decline. And so verse 33 says, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then verse 41 and following, and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet, the toes, the ten toes, were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Well, what happened to the Roman Empire is that it declined. Perhaps you have heard of the famous six-volume History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. And I, I researched, I, I looked it up, and you can purchase that brand new at Barnes & Noble for $2,425. So I ordered one for myself this week. The History and Decline. So God predicted the decline of the Roman Empire before it happened. Well, before it even existed, the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire, listen to how God fulfilled His prophecy. The Roman Empire declined because barbarian nations eventually began to invade it. And they began, the Roman Empire began to mix with these barbarian kingdoms. And the Roman, the, the Roman kingdom was eventually divided into, guess what? Ten lesser kingdoms, the toes on the feet. And these kingdoms, they had much, they retained much of the Roman strength, but they also began to be torn in pieces by the barbarian influences. And so, it fulfilled the part that says it'll be partly strong and partly broken. And the Roman kingdom was gradually broken apart by the invasions of barbarian nations. But these ten toes, these ten parts of the Roman kingdom, they tried to strengthen themselves by marriage alliances with barbarians. And that's what it says. So they will mix with one another in marriages. And one historian said, in the declining state of the Roman Empire, intermarriages with the barbarians were frequent and distinguished, yet the cement would not hold as to form any great kingdom or even to prevent the impending fate of the empire. The cement would not hold. And just as the prophecy says, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. God ordained all this 
beforehand. God is the author of history. Nothing takes God by surprise. God wasn't in heaven saying, oh no, I thought the Roman Empire was going to be strong. No. Long before the Roman Empire even existed, back in the days of the Babylonian Empire, when they weren't even thinking there was going to be a Greek Empire, a Roman Empire, they had no idea what Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what would come after Babylon, if anything. He had no idea they'd be conquered by the Medes and the Persians. But God knew. God knows what's going to happen in the next 20 years. God knows what's going to happen in the next 50 years. God knows what's going to happen in the next 200 years if He allows this nation to go on. Daniel said earlier in chapter 2, in verse 20 or 21, he says, He changes times and seasons He removes kings and sets up kings. God is in control of history. Do you believe that? God's in control. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. Now, there was this great stone. And so he says, as you looked, a stone was cut by, out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone is Jesus Christ. The stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. Without human hands. No human involvement. Jesus was born of a virgin without involvement by a man. Without involvement by another human being. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus. Isaiah calls Christ the stone who is the cornerstone. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. God laid a stone in Zion. Jesus. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Revelation 11.5 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Remember the prophecy said that the stone would break all the other kingdoms and they would scatter like chaff. That's Jesus. And what it's saying is that His kingdom and His reign is the only one that's going to last forever. And so he goes on in verse 44 and 45 and says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. It says, in the days of those kings, in the days of the Romans, in the days of Rome, 
it says, in the days of Rome, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. When did Jesus come? In the days of Rome. He came to set up His kingdom. That doesn't mean completely establish it, get it all done and everything, but to set it up, to, to plant it, to get it started, for, to launch it. And so in Matthew 4.17, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came to establish and, and found His kingdom. And this is a kingdom that He said would just keep expanding and expanding and growing and growing. Starts out like a little seed, but it becomes like a great tree. Spreads throughout the world. Now the Jews didn't, didn't understand. They thought He was going to set up a political kingdom. But He didn't come to do that. He didn't come at that time to set up a powerful kingdom at least not in the world's eyes, because He came as one who was weak. Isaiah says He was despised and rejected by men. And He set up the kingdom not with a mighty, powerful revolution, but by hanging on a cross, shedding His blood to purchase us for the kingdom. So the kingdom is primarily a spiritual kingdom. Remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate? John 18, and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? That's what he'd heard the Jews accusing him of. And Jesus answered in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that someday will be manifested for everyone to see and will someday eliminate and conquer and get rid of all other kingdoms and fill the earth and fill the heavens. Someday. And so Daniel says, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms. But it says in verse 44 that this kingdom says, it shall stand forever. The kingdom of God will stand forever. Jesus' kingdom is the only kingdom that will stand forever. Do you know this? Someday there won't be a United States of America. I mean, that's kind of hard to fathom, isn't it? Someday this country will not exist. Someday there will be no Germany. Someday there will be no... Great Britain, no France. I mean, the British will probably be glad there's no France, but there won't be any England either. <laughs> I have friends from England, and they have a hard time with French people. <laughs> but there, there's not going to be any more kingdoms of this world. So let me ask you this. What kingdom are you counting on? What kingdom are you living for? You know, if you're living for this world, if you're living for this kingdom, you're going to be sooner or later disappointed. If you're living for the United States of America, which, which I, I love this country. I thank God regularly. He allowed me to be born in this country. I praise Him for the blessings in this nation. I, I'm so grateful. I, I want good for this nation. Don't misunderstand me. But what is more important is I, I need to ask myself, 
Do I think more about the well-being of this country or do I think more about the kingdom of God? Am I more concerned about the political environment of this country or am I more concerned about people being saved and coming into the kingdom of God? Do I spend more time devoted to, to this country, which is not wrong, but do I spend more time doing that than being devoted to the kingdom of God, to serving others, encouraging others, trying to share the gospel with others, doing all I can to, to build up the church and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is infinitely more important than any earthly kingdom. That's what we need to be thinking about. That's what we need to be giving our lives to. The kingdom of God. Yes, Yes, do whatever God calls you to to serve this country. Definitely pay your taxes. The Bible says we're to pay our taxes to whom taxes are due. The Bible says we're to honor those who are in, in government and in authority. So there's a lot the Bible tells us that we are to do toward our country. But remember, the kingdom of God is the only one that's going to last forever. Let's, let's make that the important thing in our lives. Well, Daniel wraps it up. He tells what, what the origin of the dream was. He says, in verse 45, he says, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. He's saying, whatever God you serve, Nebuchadnezzar, is not as great as this God. What God reveals is certain. The dream is certain. And its interpretation true. And then Daniel is promoted. And the chapter ends up. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So just a couple quick takeaways. I'm not even going to elaborate on that last, but I just want to wrap up with this. Which are you more concerned about? The kingdom of God or the kingdoms of men? Which do you spend the most time thinking about? Who will win the election or how to spread the gospel? Do you pray as in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth? as it is in heaven, more than you fret and worry and become vexed over earthly rulers and earthly kingdoms? Now, even apart from politics, are you fearful for your future? Maybe you're not fearful about the government. Maybe you're just fearful about your finances. If you're in the kingdom of God, you are secure. You are under the rule and care of King Jesus who has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And you, if you're part of his kingdom, you're part of a kingdom that will never end. And then I want to ask you this. What is your attitude toward earthly leaders? Do you care about them as God does? As I said earlier, Peter says he desires all men to be saved. All men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Maybe you disagree with or disapprove of our president or political leaders. And I'm not saying I approve, but I'm just saying maybe you do disapprove, but do you pray for him as we're commanded to? And then I just want to read this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So let's pray. Lord, help us to keep our focus on you at all times. Lord Jesus, help us to remember that you are the stone. You are the cornerstone. You're the cornerstone, Jesus, of our lives, of the foundation that we're built on. And you're unshakable. Help us, Jesus, to keep our eyes and our focus always on you. Lord, we do pray for this nation. Please have mercy on our nation. We ask, please give us godly leaders. Please save the candidates who are running for president. Please save Donald Trump. Please save Hillary Clinton. Please save them. Please save their families. Please save President Obama and his wife and children. Please save every government leader. Lord, thank you for this country. We ask you to please continue to grant us peace so that the gospel can go forth, so that your kingdom can advance. And Lord, we pray for your kingdom. We pray, as it says in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray, Lord, bring your kingdom to this country. Bring your kingdom. Save multitudes. Please bring your kingdom to this region. Save multitudes. Please save multitudes of IUP students. Please save multitudes of students from other nations, Lord, so that they can go back and take your kingdom back to their nation. Lord, we pray all this. We ask this for your glory. And Lord, I pray that you would give us all your peace at all times, knowing that you are sovereign and in control of all things. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.